and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money, Jesus said. To which verse 14 says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. They laughed at Jesus for his view on God and money. And a number of commentators have pointed out that there seems to be, at least for the Pharisees in this particular passage, an underlying belief that wealth somehow signifies God's blessing. That wealth is equal to God's favor, especially um, the ownership of land in particular. And so they laughed at Jesus's idea that no servant can serve two masters, that you can't serve God, both God and money. To them, money signified God's blessing. The two were not opposed to one another, but one was the natural outcome or overflow of the other. And of course, if we're honest, there are actual scriptural grounds to hold that view. One commentator on this passage said, there can be no denying it. Scriptures can be found to support the position that the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. So I think it's that concept that Jesus is addressing in this passage, the concept that the scriptures themselves, the law and the prophets, teach that prosperity is equal to righteousness or that wealth equates to God's blessing. And to address that misconception, Jesus tells this parable that we have today. And the general framework of the parable itself is not original to Jesus. There were lots of these reversal of fortune stories in the ancient Near East. But Jesus tells it with an emphasis on two particular things. He tells it with an emphasis on the man's wealth, his prosperity, which these Pharisees in this passage seem to be equating with God's favor or his blessing. And secondly, with an emphasis on the man's unrighteousness, his complete lack of even the pretense of being a righteous person. So the emphasis is on the man's wealth and the man's unrighteousness, those two things. So let's look at the parable quickly. Verse, verse 19 says, uh, Jesus, this is just Jesus beginning the parable saying, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. The point that Jesus is making here is not just that this man is rich, but extremely rich, extremely wealthy. In our terms, you could sort of think of like the super yachts that people are producing these days. The purple and fine linens refer to these expensive clothes, this, um, this pomp and this grandeur that he, would, uh, that he would wear and try to show off for the world around him. While the, the description of the food is excessive and over the top, he feasted sumptuously every day. Every meal of every day is this grand feast. It's complete excess is the picture that Jesus is painting here. And the point that Jesus is making is that this person is extremely rich, and if wealth is equal to God's blessing, well, this person is surely blessed by God. But then everything else in the parable points to how despicable this man is. First of all, he can't plead ignorance. He knows who Lazarus is. Verse 24 says, this is the man speaking, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger and in water and cool my tongue. So there's no excuse of ignorance that this person can have. He knows that Lazarus exists. He knows his name. He knows he's been sitting outside of his gate begging. He knows that he's in pain and agony and in need, yet he has done nothing 
to care for Lazarus. He doesn't even offer him the scraps from his table. And some commentators have pointed out that um, in the ancient world, you know, people would use bread. The rich would use bread to, to clean off their hands and that those scraps would just fall to the floor. He won't even offer that. He's got, he's got bread to, to use as a cleaning utensil, but he doesn't have bread to offer to Lazarus. If he were a righteous man, he would at least give alms to the poor and make some sort of effort to care for those in need, or at least make some sort of show of it at the very least. But this man can't even be bothered with the pretense of righteousness. Even the dogs in this parable show more compassion to Lazarus than this man does. They see his sores and they come over and lick them. They try to offer some sort of care to poor Lazarus, more than even this man offers. There's absolutely nothing redeeming in this parable about this rich man. Even in the afterlife, this man tries to barter on his status as a child of Abraham and says, Father Abraham, and he's, he's simply acknowledging, he's trying to manipulate Abraham. I'm your child, come in and help me. He wants to use his status as a child of Abraham to manipulate Abraham. Even as the audacity to, to think that Lazarus should be used as his servant in the afterlife to come and cool his tongue and be sent to his brothers, he still doesn't even see the dignity of Lazarus in the afterlife. He's still just a tool for him to use. There is nothing redeeming about this man in this parable. And so the Pharisees are forced to question the simple equation of wealth being equal to God's favor. Obviously, this man is extremely wealthy, but equally obviously, this man is extremely wicked. There's nothing righteous about this person. There's nothing that would demonstrate um, or, or merit God's favor in any way, shape, or form. So what do they do with that information? How do they sort of circle that square? And then Jesus also addresses the question of scripture at the end of this parable when the rich man says to Abraham, then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have scripture already. Let them listen to the scriptures. It's the same thing that Jesus was saying in verses 16 and 17 earlier in the chapter when he said, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What Jesus wants these Pharisees to see is that when he speaks of wealth and faithfulness, he's not saying something that is contrary to the law and the prophets. You can cherry pick a few verses here and there, but when you read the entirety of the law and the prophets, you'll see that there is no contradiction between what it says and what Jesus says. The arc of the story of scripture does not say that prosperity is equal to righteousness. The arc of the story of scripture says that all of us are called to be good stewards of the gifts that God has entrusted to us, both great and small, and that we have a responsibility to care for those around us, using the good things that God has given us to care for those around us. That's what it teaches us. And he Wright, when he was speaking about Luke 16, said this. If you could put it up, I put this quote on there. 
He said, putting the passage together, we find the underlying challenge to be faithfulness, faithful in our use of money, faithful to God rather than money, faithful in our hearts, not just to outward appearances, faithful to the kingdom, which has now begun in G with Jesus, faithful to our marriages. He's thinking all of Luke chapter 16 here. As soon as we begin to think of money or land or other people as commodities we might own or exploit, we take a step away from our vocation to be truly human beings, God's true children, and towards the other master who is always ready to accept new servants. Read the entirety of the Law and the Prophets. Jesus is saying, don't just cherry pick a few verses and you will see that they are all calling us to the exact same righteousness that Jesus is. And so what does this mean for us, brothers and sisters? Does it mean that we are all doomed to an eternity of torment because we are all generally rich by global standards? Does it mean that this passage is only about the super rich or the extremely destitute, or does it have something to say to all of us? One thing I think that it definitely says is that we need to uh, scrub our minds of any hint of the prosperity gospel that suggests that wealth is equal to God's favor, which most people whom I know don't ascribe to directly, but often I think many of us can ascribe to it indirectly if we think about it in the reverse. When something bad happens to us, often we could think, is this God's punishment for something that I've done? Which I want to suggest has the exact same root as the prosperity gospel. Or we can apply it to churches more broadly. We can, we can look at some churches that seem thriving by outward standards, large numbers, big budgets, and we can automatically assume that this is a sign of God's favor, or we could do the opposite. Too. We can think small is equal to God's righteousness. You have to be very careful of these things. Don't judge by outward appearances. So I think we need to rid our minds of any hint of the prosperity gospel to cleanse our imaginations of that. And what this passage, I think, is ultimately inviting us into, it's a call to faithful stewardship. That's the point, I think. To recognize that everything that we have is a gift from God, both great and small. That we are not owners of things, but stewards. And we are called to be faithful with everything that God has entrusted to us. And so the question I think this brings to each one of us is what does faithfulness look like in each one of your lives? Who are the Lazaruses in your life? whom God is inviting you to care for? How might you need the care of others as well? I can't answer those questions for you, of course. It invites prayerful discernment, I think, from each one of us. So the questions are to me, what are the resources that God has entrusted to me for the sake of his glory and for the benefit of those around me? What resources has God given you? What financial resources has God given you to use for his kingdom, for his glory, for the blessing of those around you? We're going to hear a presentation on fair trade in just a few minutes. I think it's a wonderful way to be thinking about using the resources that we have that bring benefit to those around us. 
What resources of time has God entrusted to you? How can you use your time more wisely? It's not just financial resources, but resources of time. How can you use those to the benefit of those around you to the glory of God? What emotional resources has God entrusted to you to exercise for God's kingdom, God's glory, for the people around you? Who are the people in your life that you need to just be present to? Sometimes the gift of presence is incredible. That's a resource that you've been given. The gift of friendship. What are some of the spiritual resources that the Lord has given you? Who can you pray for? Who can you encourage? Who can you build up? What spiritual resources has the Lord entrusted to you? Those are the questions I think we need to ask. What are the resources, broadly speaking, that the Lord has entrusted to you? What gifts and talents do you have specifically that you can use for his glory and his honor and for the benefit of those around you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.